all of you had a good weekend. Today is Monday, May 1st, or Loyalty Day, as we call it here in the United States. You can just taste the patriotism. You are listening to the Fiskamal Podcast, where we talk about the four-alarm dumpster fire that has become our legal and political system in this country. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette. We are broadcasting from our headquarters in downtown Durham, North Carolina. And today, this is our very first full episode. We had a little teaser for you earlier this week. We are actually going to have a full discussion today. We're going to talk a little bit about Loyalty Day and some of the other news out of the Trump administration. We're also going to discuss some of the uh, criminal justice news going on, specifically our jail system. And then in the back half of the program, we're going to talk a little bit about our courts and the law, give you some updates on that. But first, let's go back to Loyalty Day. Those of you that have been keeping up with the news may have noticed that President Donald Trump, never thought I would say those words when uh, I came up with this idea for a podcast a while back, signed a proclamation declaring that May 1st will be Loyalty Day. And the proclamation, just to give you a quick excerpt of it, we recognize and reaffirm our allegiance to the principles upon which our nation is built. We pledge our dedication to the United States of America. Blah, blah, blah. Folks, we have a lot of very dumb things that we do in our government. And one of them is Loyalty Day. Now, you might think this is a a new thing with Donald Trump. It's not. It's been around for a while. And the history of it just kind of highlights the total lack of conviction that some of our politicians have about the ideals of America and what it's about. You know, May 1st, in most other cultures, is called May Day. It's just a a spring holiday. You know, you look at, like, the United Kingdom, and they celebrated it for a while. And then, years ago, the communists decided to declare it International Workers' Day because of the uh, Haymarket riots. You know, they decided that May 1st would be the, the day to celebrate the workers and the proletariat and all that fun stuff. And our government, and their infinite wisdom decided that they really had no belief that America could succeed in the face of communism without having to coerce your loyalty. So President Dwight Eisenhower signed the first proclamation for Loyalty Day, and every single president that we have ever had since has done the exact same thing. It's just absolutely creepy to me, but that's neither here nor there. So just so you know, today is International Workers' Day, and Loyalty Day, and May Day, and it's all just kind of stupid. But while we're talking about loyalty to America and its principles, let's go ahead and talk about our president. And, you know, this past weekend was his uh, 100th day in office, so it's pretty normal for the the media and politicians to talk about all of the great achievements that they've made over the past three months. And as a very quick aside, and this is one of the few times you will ever hear me defend Donald Trump, the guy's an idiot, all right? But the 100-day time frame really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We didn't have it until President Franklin Delano Roosevelt with his 100 days, 
And since then, you know, it's been kind of an arbitrary benchmark, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for gauging the activity of a four-year administration. You know, if you're going to pass legislation, I would hope that you're thinking about it a little more than a couple months to actually get it through the Congress. You know, if we're trying to figure out benchmarks that we can use to gauge an effective administration over a 100-day time span, there might be other ones, but there are really only two I can think of. All right, on the positive side, how many appointments that need to be filled has the president made and gotten confirmed? I think that makes sense. Every president has to appoint their own people to the bureaucracy. Has he actually gotten that done? On that standard, President Trump is an abject failure because even though he got his high-level folks confirmed, there's still dozens upon dozens upon dozens of positions that need to get done so that the federal bureaucracy can do what we pay it to do. You know, I give him credit for his Supreme Court nominee, Neil Gorsuch. Looks like he's going to be a fine choice. You know, I give him credit for his foreign policy team. Nikki Haley was a good choice for UN ambassador. Mad Dog Mattis was great for Secretary of Defense. But beyond that, I, I really wonder who in his appointments have been worth what we're paying them. And then you've got all these other vacancies still around. So on the positive side, this whole number of appointments confirmed, Trump has failed. And then on the negative side, you're thinking, how many scandals has a president getting into? So in any 100-day period, those are the benchmarks. Have you gotten your people confirmed? What kind of scandals have you gotten into? And I'm not even going to bother recounting all of the Trump scandals because, sweet baby Jesus, there are just so many of them. And I want to give you a couple for today. All right, I'm going to play a clip here. Hang on. I've got Mike, my sound guy here from the uh, the teaser episode. He's still around. He's promised me that we're going to be able to get this uh, this clip working. So we're going to find out. Let me see if I can play you this clip. You're going to be hearing from the president himself as part of his interview with Fox News a couple days ago. I think more than anything else, I'm a person of common sense. I understand what has to be done. I get things done. I've always been a closer. Uh, we don't have a lot of closers in politics, and I understand why. It's a very rough system. It's, a, it's an archaic system. We don't have a lot of closers in our government, and I understand why, because it's an archaic system. Wow. Now, I don't know how many of you are uh, sci-fi nerds like I am. Yeah, any watch Star Wars? It sounds like something straight that out of Emperor Palpatine's mouth, you know? The Senate is an archaic system stopping me from defending the empire, you know, blah, blah, blah. Wow, from the President of the United States, holy shit. Pardon my language, by the way. I will do my best to avoid profanity on the podcast, but we're in an era where I don't know that that's going to be doable necessarily as time goes on. But it just blows my mind that you have a president talking about how he's such a common sense guy. And if only we didn't have this archaic system standing in the way, he'd be able to get more stuff done. I mean, this is how dictators talk. And here we've elected him to occupy the highest political office that we have in the country. And it's fascinating to me because it's, it's actually not just Trump. I mean, he certainly, in terms of ability to uh, bombard the airwaves with ridiculous commentary, he certainly takes the cake. But even his underlings have the issue as well. I don't know if any of you listened to uh, the chief of staff, Reince Priebus, talking with uh, Jonathan Carl, but here's a uh, here's an excerpt from that one. And what they're talking about is Trump's promise on the campaign to open up the liable laws, 
change the rules on defamation. But I want you to listen to Reince's answer to the question. First of all, there was what he said about opening up the libel laws, uh, tweeting, the failing New York Times has disgraced the media world, gotten me wrong for two solid years, change the libel laws. That would require, as I understand it, a constitutional amendment. Is he really going to pursue that? Is that something he wants to pursue? I think it's something that we've looked at um, and how that gets executed or whether that goes anywhere is a different story. Now, out of all of the other things that we have an issue with, dealing with the fallout from Obamacare, dealing with foreign policy, dealing with the justice system, pick one. Why are you looking into a constitutional amendment to deal with defamation? You know, I, I'm not that old, okay? It wasn't that long ago when the Supreme Court decided the Citizens United case. And if you haven't read it, go read it, all right? I think it was a good decision, made sense, followed long-standing precedent. And when Democrats in Congress proposed a constitutional amendment to reverse that decision, it was Republicans who made hay out of it. Oh my God, for the first time, politicians are proposing changes to the First Amendment, changes to freedom of expression. And now you elect this guy to office and magically it's the Republicans that are doing that. You know, got a chief of staff, former chairman of the Republican National Committee, saying we've looked into it. Guys, I got news for you. You've got more important things to be looking into. All right. And, and that's not all. You know, in addition to talking like a dictator himself, having his chief of staff talk about amending the Constitution for things that, you know, really should not be a high priority. Even in foreign affairs, the president has invited the president of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte. I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name. Someone on Twitter correct me if I've got that wrong. But gave him a phone call and is inviting him to the White House. Now, I don't know how much y'all follow foreign affairs. I confess that I'm not as up to date on it as I probably should be. But one of the things that Duterte is known for is their country's war on drugs, where they just kill people. If you're a drug user, a drug dealer, they execute you without a trial because they can. During the time that he has been in office, they have killed thousands of people. You know, and this guy is getting White House phone calls, White House invitations. Might not be a big deal to the United States, but to foreign heads of state, it's still seen as something very prestigious to go ahead and come here and uh, be wined and dined by the president, the leader of the free world. You know, and it's just, it really is a pattern for the president with just about everything in foreign affairs. You know, he has played nice with communists, whether it's, you know, Vladimir Putin helping to get him elected, uh, Chairman Xi over in China talking about North Korea, um, you know, any dictator, Erdogan over in Turkey, you know, got a, a referendum where he's got now dictator's powers. Trump called him to congratulate him. You know, this is bizarre, you know, unprecedented activity from the president of the United States. So as we're here celebrating Loyalty Day, quote unquote, I've got a novel idea. Why don't we start with having some loyalty to our founding principles, all right? Loyalty to the Constitution, not just to the text, but to the ideas that are enshrined in it. You know, the idea that supreme authority legislatively belongs in the legislative branch. And not only does it stay there, it gets split between both a House and a Senate. 
And you'll remember, when the Constitution was ratified, senators weren't popularly elected. They were chosen by state legislatures because the founders wanted to make sure that there was never too much power concentrated in any one part of the government. So the people elected the House, they elected the state legislatures who acted as a buffer picking the senators, and those two took powers that were separate and apart from the executive branch. Imagine that, this concept of separate and co-equal branches of government. You want to have some loyalty, that's where you need to start. All right, but enough about Trump. I swear I'm going to end up dying of a heart attack at a young age just following all the craziness that comes out of this administration every year. Let's talk about the new diet fad going on in our country, jails. You want, you know, forget South Beach. The new way to go is to get yourself locked up. Now, be forewarned, you might die in the process, but that's just how it goes. We had two very high-profile cases this past week of inmates dying while they're incarcerated. Now, the first one happened in Milwaukee, where a sheriff, I put that in air quotes, you can't see it because we're, we're doing audio only, but Sheriff David Clark, uh, his jail, the one he's tasked with running, uh, 38-year-old Terrell Thomas died. He was in solitary confinement for eight days, and the deputies cut off the man's water. So during that eight-day time span, the guy lost 35 pounds and withered away and died in his cell phone from profound dehydration. That was what the medical examiner actually ruled it, profound dehydration. You know, And you read through the story. I'll give you the link to the Washington Post story in the show notes. But you read through it, and it's the height of government incompetence, the height of not meism. You know, one deputy cut off the water, but just accidentally forgot to note it in the records. None of the other deputies bothered to check on this guy. So being arrested without trial, the man was put to death. You know, he had a hearing that should have been coming up. You know, you look at a jail, you got roughly here in Durham, North Carolina, you have about 72% of the people in jail on any given night haven't been convicted of anything yet. You know, that was the case with, excuse me, that was the case with Mr. Thomas. He had been arrested, facing prosecution eventually, but never got his day in court because the deputies killed him. Ended up losing all of that weight, you know, 35 pounds in eight days. But not to be outdone, we go down to Utah, where the Salt Lake Tribune has a report coming out of Duquesne County. I think it's pronounced Duquesne. It's... Chesney could also be a pronunciation. I don't know. I'm not from Utah. Uh, but Madison Jensen, uh, a 21-year-old white female, ended up dying herself where she lost, came in at, hang on one second, I'm scrolling through the, uh, the article here, came in at 129 pounds when she was booked. All right. When they ended up finding her dead on the floor, she weighed 87 pounds. Do the math, okay? 129 pounds when she came in, 87 pounds when she went out, all right? 42 pounds in the span of just a couple days. And the sad part about Jensen's death is that it highlights some of the problems we've got in this country when we're trying to deal with mental illness, trying to deal with substance abuse, because Jensen's parents called the police because they wanted to get her out of the house, you know? And on the surface, you think that's a really dumb thing to do, 
okay? And I will tell you now, if any of you are listening, calling the police to get your kids out of the house is stupid. You shouldn't do it. I feel like a lot of parents of color probably know this already. A lot of white folks do too. But you would be fascinated to see how many people trust the government for reasons that I fully don't understand. But what happened was she had threatened suicide at home. And her dad was concerned that the stress of her threatening suicide was going to have a problem on his wife's mental health. So he called the police and said, hey, take her away. And that's what they did. And four days later, she was dead. All right. So even though that's crazy, even though it makes no sense to call police to deal with these types of issues, especially when we see so many examples of folks dying as a result of it, it's the natural consequence you have when your governments don't provide any resources for mental health treatment or substance abuse. All right. The police are not equipped to deal with that, but guess what? No one else is either. If you look at a budget, in most government units, you know, especially here in North Carolina, you look at the biggest providers of mental health services, there are jails. You know, we should have actual mental health facilities available to deal with this. You know, we should have resources available for folks who suffer from addiction, but instead we incarcerate them. We route them through the system. And what happens, unfortunately, is you get folks who die, you know, whether it's because of suicide or in the case of Miss Jensen, the jail didn't provide her her medications. She actually wrote a note to the medical examiner begging for help. She thought she had the stomach flu. She kept vomiting for days. And folks, I'll tell you, I had the stomach flu when I was a kid. I nearly died from it. All right, It's some nasty, nasty stuff. Someone in that jail should have checked on her to make sure that was what was going on. But they assumed that she was a heroin addict and she was going through detox and just whining about it rather than actually verify it. So when they ended up doing the autopsy, they didn't find any drugs in her system. It wasn't heroin, it wasn't addiction. She had threatened suicide, and the government decided to kill her. You know, That's an ongoing problem we have in this country with our jail system, and it's something that needs to be addressed. But the fact is, you have a lot of people, especially on my side of the aisle, look, I've been a Republican since before I could vote. All right, I still consider myself a conservative. You have people on my side of the aisle who assume that because you happen to be arrested, because you happen to be in jail, it's because you've done something wrong. And if something happens to you, well, that's what you get for doing something wrong, and that was your choice. When the fact is, you got a lot of people who are locked up when they haven't actually committed a crime. Or the crime they've committed is something trivial. You know, let's assume for the sake of argument, let's say Miss Jensen was in fact a drug addict. She didn't deserve the death penalty. You know, let's assume Mr. Thomas had actually been arrested and would be convicted eventually for his offense. It wasn't a death penalty offense. All right? Most states, you can only go to death for a few things. Typically, it's killing someone else. Right? If you just happen to be addicted to drugs or going through a mental breakdown like Mr. Thomas was, you don't die for it. But that's what's happening every single day in this country, and our politicians refuse to do anything about it. That's enough with the news. So let's talk about the law. What I want to do for this podcast is at least 
once or twice a month. Ideally, I like to do it every podcast, but I don't know how many uh, topics I can come up with. But at least once or twice a month, I want to go over some of the basic legal things um, that affect how our government operates. You know, we call it hashtag Law 140 on Twitter. That's hashtag LAW140. I've covered a few of them already. And for at least the first few episodes, a lot of these law snippets are going to be duplicates of what we've covered on Twitter. Because law is something that should not be complicated. It is. It's incredibly complicated. It's something that I went to law school for three years to study. And even then, they call it the practice of law for a reason. I'm still learning new stuff every day, even though I've been practicing for five years now. You know, But it's something that citizens need to understand if you're ever going to be able to hold your politicians accountable. So today I want to kind of give you a high-level overview of the court system here and some of its key features. All right. So typically, you first got a breakdown in the courts between what are called trial courts, where actual hearings and trials take place, and our appellate courts, your court of appeals and your supreme courts. All right. That's one of the main divisions between a trial and an appellate court. In addition to that, you have the federal court system, and then each state has its own separate court system. So federal courts are courts of limited jurisdiction. The only time you can get into a federal court is if it addresses what's called a federal question, so an issue of federal law, something about the Constitution, something about bankruptcy, something where Congress has passed a specific statute allowing you to sue in federal court, and what are called diversity cases. So a diversity case is something where the conflict is between one party lives in one state, another party lives in another state, and the amount of money they're fighting over is above a certain dollar amount. So right now that threshold is $75,000. If you live in California, you have a problem with me here in North Carolina, and the total dollar amount we're fighting over is $75,000 and one penny or more you can file suit in federal court. In addition to that, each state has its own courts as well, and those courts are broken down into trial and appellate courts also. So in North Carolina, you start out in district court most of the time. If it's a criminal case, that is kind of a, um, it's tough to explain, but essentially your criminal case is is a test run in district court. If you win as a defendant, that's it. All right, you've won your case, you're done. But if you lose, you get to appeal to superior court for what is called a trial de novo, where you basically start from scratch and have a jury and, and do it all over again. On the civil side, the whether you're in district court or superior court depends on the total dollar amount that you're fighting over. So if it's less than $10,000 in North Carolina, you're in what's called small claims court, where you don't have a judge. It's actually heard by a magistrate who is a special person appointed by the uh, the chief district court judge for that particular judicial district. Sometimes they're a lawyer, sometimes they're not. But a magistrate has a hearing. It's very quick. You only have an hour. Each side gets 30 minutes to present its case. And then based on whatever decision the magistrate makes, either side can appeal it to district court for a trial de novo, just as if it were a criminal case. All right? If it's more than $10,000 but less than $25,000, you start in district court where you're typically heard by a district court judge. You can request a jury, but that rarely happens. 
And then if you happen to lose, from there, you appeal to the Court of Appeals. If you're above $25,000, you start in Superior Court. Superior Court is very fancy compared to district. Um, the judges there are on a rotation where they rotate among different counties to make sure that there's never any favoritism as much as possible. And by default, Superior Court cases have a jury. You have to request one, um, and it's rarely done in district. You can get one. Superior, that's the default. We're assuming you're going to request a jury, but you can then waive that right. You can give up your right to a jury trial. Depending on the result in the trial court, you have an automatic right to appeal to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. So that's our first level appellate court. There are 15 judges. The, uh, the General Assembly has reduced that to 12. We'll talk about that in another podcast probably. And what happens is your case gets assigned to a panel of three randomly selected judges. And those judges look at the case and decide whether or not there were any uh, procedural or legal errors made in the trial court. And what happens is, however an appellate court rules on the facts related to your case and other cases similar to it, it becomes precedent on the trial courts. The trial courts are obligated to follow what the Court of Appeals says. Now, most of the time, those panel decisions are unanimous. They're three-zero decisions. Uh, If there's ever a split panel... That's still binding precedent, but it also gives you an automatic right to appeal to the North Carolina Supreme Court. We have seven justices on the North Carolina Supreme Court, four Democrats, three Republicans, and same type of rules apply. They look and see if there were any errors of law uh, or errors in procedure made further down, and decisions by the Supreme Court are binding precedents further down the line. In the federal courts, the same deal. District courts are trial courts. Your circuit courts of appeals are the first-level appellate courts covering multiple states. They also have panel decisions. And then you can also have what is called in-bank review, where the court for the circuit court of appeals, all of the judges get together and rehear a case. And then you can petition the U.S. Supreme Court to have a case heard if you don't like your circuit court outcome. The decisions made by the Supreme Court are binding on everybody. Uh, the courts of appeals for the federal courts, and if it's a constitutional issue, it's also binding on the state courts. And then same type of deal with the circuit courts of appeals for the levels below it. So I hope that kind of gives you a, a rough rundown for the court system. There's a lot more to it than that. You know, in a later podcast, we'll talk about some of the specialty courts that states have come up with to address specific problems that we have policy-wise. Um, but that's kind of the rough overview. So I want to give you that background so when we have other uh, Law 140 topics in future podcasts, you're not completely caught off guard. Folks, we're about to run out of time. I'm trying to keep this podcast under 30 minutes so that you can uh, listen to me during your morning commute. I want you to follow us on Twitter. So the Twitter handle for the podcast is at Fiskamall, F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. And you can tweet us with your comments or suggestions using the hashtag, hashtag Fisk. That's hashtag F-S-C-K, Foxtrot Sierra Charlie Kilo. You also can follow me on Twitter at Greg underscore Doucette. That is at G-R-E-G underscore D-O-U-C-E-T-T-E. 
Let me know your thoughts about this week's episode, especially since it's our very first one. If the uh, the volume is off or there's anything else weird, uh, please let me know. And also give me your ideas on what you want to have covered in the podcast for the, uh, the weeks and months ahead. Thank you for listening, and I hope all of you have a terrific week. Thank you.